So this is exciting. I get to use the fancy microphone, um, kind of like a rock star, like Beyonce, or like Reba McIntyre. So this is really exciting for me. I don't get to do this very often. I've never done this before. So I want you to temper your expectations, okay? Um, but this will be good. I'm excited. So yeah, I do want you to calibrate your expectations. The last time, not the last time I was here, but if, but a little, little while back, I was doing announcements up here, and I had one announcement to give. It was come to the men's breakfast on the following Saturday. Easy peasy, no problem. What I said was, please come out and enjoy our delicious men next Saturday. So, so my lovely wife, Michelle, is back there kind of having a minor heart attack right now because she doesn't know what I'm going to say. Um, neither do I, but that's okay. I have a script here. As long as I stick to the script, it's been looked over by several different people, so everything should be okay. Um, I, will ad I will admit, uh, right now, all the Bible references that you will see on the screen will be in NIV because I am, I am NIV positive. And so we have made it to the happiest of seasons, Christmas. I love Christmas time. It's my favorite time. I love this time of year. And I don't think there's almost, it's almost never too early to kick it off. Our house has been decorated since November 17th. I was listening to Christmas music two weeks before that. And no, I'm not tired of it yet. And I'm not going to be tired of it until like December 26th. Then I'll be tired of it. And I'll switch all my playlists over again. Maybe it's just, I don't know, honestly, any time after Halloween, it's perfectly, I think it's perfectly acceptable listening to Christmas music. I'm not a fan of Halloween. It's not my favorite holiday. I know that's not the most culturally popular opinion, but I don't care for Halloween, which is weird because I love dressing up. So if there's any creative types in the house, I think we just need to create events where we have more opportunities to dress up in fun costumes. So, that's my two cents. But every year, around this time of year, me and Pastor James have a little, I don't call it a debate, a discussion. We talk about when's the right time to take down your Christmas decorations. Now, I don't think there's any, any wrong time to put them up, but there is some debate on when to take them down. Our, we have two different schools of thought. I personally believe our family follows the, follows the idea that December 26th, fair game. Take them down because by January 1st, clean slate. You're starting fresh. There's nothing looming over your head. My friend, Pastor James, believes that January 6th, anytime after January 6th, is a proper time because according to the, the high church calendar, the, the litur liturgical tradition, that's when Christmas ends. In my opinion, that's liturgical procrastination. But that's just my opinion. I think there's grace for that. I think there's enough room for everybody, whether you're a January 1st, whether January 6th, or whether you're a March 1st person. There's grace for that. There's a, that's, that's perfectly all right. Now, what I want to do today is I want to peel back the curtain a little bit on, um, on Christmas. 
Um, now, please, uh, please bear around. I know that I'm moving around a lot more than, than most of the other pastors. Um, I am used to teaching either youth or, or sparks, which is like our kindergartners. And you really got to keep them engaged. You got to stand in front of them and say, you stop talking, or ask them a pointed question. I don't anticipate doing that, um, but I am prepared. Um, if you fall asleep, I may call you out. Um, so, so just be aware that's, that's on the table, just to, um, just to say you're, again, so you're setting your expectations. But I want to, again, just peel the, peel the curtain back from where we, um, where we normally go in the Christmas season. I'm going to start by reading an excerpt from a book called The Paradise King. Silence. Silence came afterward. Silence that cut like a knife. Silence that hung in the air like words of doom. A silence that gripped the land and withered it like an enduring drought. They say hope deferred makes the heart sick, and it does. But this, the intertestamental period, is something worse than hope deferred. It is hope sick, and then dead, and then buried in the graves forgotten. And even the headstones worn away by time. God said nothing. When the exiles came back from Babylon and entered the old country like men and women who dreamed, he did not speak. When they rebuilt the temple, he did not come. They raised a wall around the city that was prophesied to have no walls and dedicated the altar and still Yahweh did not return. Persia declined. Macedon rose, and Alexander was a man of war, and he conquered Persia's provinces. Then he died, and his generals divided the place. They fashioned a fragmented empire, and those meant war. And so the rule of Judah often changed hands. A new Egyptian dynasty ruled a while, and afterward the Seleucids came. They drove out Egypt and governed Jerusalem. One of these, Antiochus IV Epiphanes, shed pig's blood on the altar of God and thus defiled the temple. Well, that was more than the Jews could allow. Where was Yahweh? Judas the hammer arose. He drove out the Greeks and sanctified the place and purified the temple. And it was dedicated again. And no fire came. Oh, they noticed. God was not in Jerusalem. It was a public secret and a shame on Judah. What should the people do? How could Yahweh be implored to return? The priestly caste divided, the region's rivalries intensified, and then Rome came and trampled the people like a beast from an apocalypse. It murdered many and it brooked no arguments. Where was God? Where? And in the shadow of Jerusalem, young Jewish youths grew up with mothers who told them, one day God's anointed will come. And by the time they were teens, they were sure he would not. Many grew sick of watching the desert, sick of reading the old scrolls. Time passed, and God did not appear. And then suddenly, something occurred. It was like a lost father's letter arriving in the mail. It was like a legend walking out of an old story, speaking the old language and dressed in colors long since forgotten. He came. 
he came. Those two words. Those two words sent ripples throughout the universe and changed the course of humanity for all time. But it didn't just change humanity. The unseen world. The place where angels and demons battle and where kingdom-shaping forces move behind the scenes were shaken. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity said, enemy-occupied territory. That is what this world is. Christianity is the story, the story of how the rightful king has landed. You might say landed in disguise and is calling us all to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. When you go to church and you are really listening in, you, you are really listening in to the secret wireless from our friends. That is why the enemy is so anxious to prevent us from going. He does it by playing on our conceit and our laziness and our intellectual snobbery. Now let me read about Christmas from a different perspective and from a different place than is normally chosen. Revelation 12. And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns. And on his, head, on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Now this is a broad sweep of history. And it begins at a time before time was counted and well before the earth was created. Because briefly... It very briefly recounts the celestial rebellion where Satan was hurled from the ramparts of heaven along with his seditious followers. And it mentions it in a way that is short on details and just tells us this is the thing that happened, but don't dwell on it. Because what followed in that brief passage right there is a speed read through history where Satan tried again and again to short-circuit God's plan. God's plan to redeem a fallen mankind which culminated at the perfect moment in history for the prophesied Son of Man to appear. But if you think that our enemy, the accuser, that same great red dragon from Revelation, gave up trying to destroy God's people after Jesus came and purchased our salvation through his life and death and life again, then I'm afraid history has a lot to say because Satan did not stop trying to destroy. From Rome to Hitler, all the way to today's headlines, the people of Israel are under a kind of hatred that seems almost unhinged until we remember that there is a being of immense power 
that is filled with rage and is capable of great harm until the time comes that he is judged once and for all. But who is this dragon bent on destruction? Well, first let's go over who it's not. It's not the other people. It's not those people. It's not them. It's not Democrats. It's not ultra-MAGA followers. It's not woke activists. It's not Muslims. And it's not even vegetarians. I'd love vegetarians on the side. <laughs> Sorry. Ephesians 6.12 says, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Now, of course, we need to oppose evil where we see it. But in our hearts, we are not allowed to come to see the person as the true enemy. Because there is a much greater evil pulling the strings behind the scenes. G.K. Chesterton wrote that the true soldier fights not because he hates what is in front of him, but because he loves what is behind him. When God humbled himself and came down in that small Middle Eastern village as a helpless baby, it was not because he hated the devil. It was because he loved each and every one of us. The point of the Christian life is not to search out evil and expose it because the fight is not the point. The central theme of the Bible is God chasing down his beloved despite the open rebellion and desertion of that same beloved. There's no better example of that than the person of Jesus. Because he was born in the most humble of circumstances and grew up in what had to be challenging times. Until he burst forth onto the scene and let his intentions be known to, what, to all what he was there to do. Jesus was very deliberate when he chose Isaiah 61 as the kickoff passage for his public ministry. From Luke 4, verses 18 and 19. Jesus' public ministry was kicked off, quoting from Isaiah, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of our Lord's favor. Jesus choosing this verse was a declaration of war against darkness itself. Just look at the verse, it's, uh, just look at the verse. Freedom for the prisoners means that there are those that are in prison that need to be freed. And to the oppressed, to set the oppressed free, Jesus is acknowledging that there are those under the darkest oppression that need to be set free. And if you swing over to Isaiah 61 really quick, this is one of those moments where, where punctuation matters. Because, in, because when Jesus says to proclaim the year of our Lord's favor, it's a period at the end of that sentence. But in Isaiah, there's a comma after that. That's important 
Because in Isaiah 61, it goes on to proclaim the year of our Lord's favor, comma, and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. Now, Jesus put a period at the end of that because when Jesus came the first time, it wasn't to bring the vengeance. It was to proclaim the year of our Lord's favor. Now, the vengeance, it's coming. Not when Jesus came the first time, but when Jesus comes the second time, that's when it's, that's when he's bringing the vengeance. Don't be lulled to sleep as recorded in 2 Peter 3, 9, it says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But back to the story behind the story of Christmas. The world is a love story that's, the world is a love story that's set in a world at war your, heart's a, your heart is the prize. Proverbs 4.23 says, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Your heart, your heart is the greatest prize of all, and Satan knows it. He knows that if he can get you to lose heart, then he knows that he can hurt the heart of God. The enemy knows that he cannot touch God himself. But as any parent knows, anybody who's loved someone knows, as anybody who's had a child in pain knows, how you really hurt a parent is to hurt their kids. Satan knows he can't attack God, but he can hurt his children, and that will hurt the heart of God. He... Satan knows that his days are numbered and he's been waging a war. He's been waging a scorched earth campaign against the human heart for centuries as an act of desperate revenge for losing his place in heaven. But here's where I say something really controversial, so this is where I need a little audience interaction. That you're going to gasp soon because I'm going to say something so shocking. If any of you are carrying vegetables to throw at me, this may be the moment for it. There are more verses in John chapter 3 than just John 3.16. I mean, everybody knew that, right? I mean, that shouldn't be shocking, but it seems like we only lock in on John 3.16. But before that, but before that, John, John 3 verses 5 through 8, Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh. But the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. Now, I did mention John 3.16. And this is, again, another audience interaction moment, but for real this time. John 3.16 how many of you know it? Just a quick show of hands. Okay, enough of you to get a quorum. Whatever language, whatever version, could we just say John 3.16? I mean, how amazing is that? To just a group of just random people that happen to know a 2,000-year-old verse 
can quote it for memory. Most people don't have things memorized, but John 3.16 is. So, for God so loved the world, that whosoever believes in him should not perish. Everlasting life. I just think that's cool. The fact that, that we're all here and so many people know that. I just love that. All right, and we're back because we're all born of water. That's just natural childbirth. If you're here, you were born. Whether you want it to be or not is irrelevant. If you're here, you were born. So we can just knock that one right off the list. But we're not all born of the Spirit. Not all human not all humans that are walking around today have been born of the Spirit. But those who are born of the Spirit, well, they're special. They're unique. Because they're amphibians. They're amphibians in this world. Because while we live and move and have our being, as Paul quoted one of the ancient poets, We also breathe the air of heaven itself as we give ourselves to the leading of the Spirit. It just, it was just, like, just like we read in John, the wind blows where it wants to, and we don't know where it came from or where it's going, but we know that it's always at work. Because the Bible is full of examples of God coming through for his people in ways that often defy human wisdom. Example after example of God telling people, wait for it. And boom, the Red Sea parts after God, God karate chops the water, water, as my friend Bernard described it. Sending in a non-battle-hardened shepherd boy to, to knock down the Philistine giant, that's a terrible plan. But bang, the giant fell down. Now, I don't believe the Bible would be filled with stories of God coming through for his beloved if they were the exception rather than what should be expected. Because the wind of the Spirit blows where it will and it moves through the hearts of those who have given their lives to the one who loves them most. So my beloved amphibians, you dear spiritual salamanders, who live in both this world and the one to come, you are waging a war. But it is not a war that we meet violence with more violence. We're called to sound, act, and live differently than the world we live in because we are motivated by the world that we are not yet in. So every act of kindness, every act of forgiveness, mercy, and sacrifice that you give to someone is a direct assault against the gates of hell itself. But make no mistake, your assaults will not remain unanswered. Because there's a reason why Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 11 was written, which says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. You need armor because you're in a fight. And it's a fight that is both already won and one that we are still fighting. It's a fight that's had a lot of casualties Many seem to be missing in action, and some think that as long as we're nice to everybody, everything will be just fine. But that's not true. 
Because if you're a believer in Christ, then you are in the fight whether you want to be or not. And your enemy, who is described as a roaring lion looking to devour, and whose primary mission is to steal and kill and destroy, because he hates everything that you are. You cannot convince me that there's not a well-coordinated effort to destroy hope and make us mistrust the heart of the Father. Everyone in this room has experienced more than their share of heartache, and it is an ache that we were not designed for and that it was not part of God's original design in Eden because we still carry echoes of what our first parents remember as they walked in the garden. But as soon as Satan had the ear of Eve and Adam willingly took a bite of that forbidden fruit, the fight was on. But take heart, because we are not, nor will we ever be alone in the fight. Because way back at the front of the Bible, in Exodus 15, this was written, The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. He is my God and I will praise him. My father's God, and I will exalt him. Yahweh is a warrior. Yahweh is his name. This war was not kicked off with a shot heard around the world, nor was it awaking the sleeping giant. The beginning of the end for darkness happened in a quiet corner of a tiny village in the most unlikely places with the cry of a newborn. Then despite all the efforts throughout history to silence that child as he grew into the man to fulfill his mission to set the captives free, the enemy knew that he'd lost. Now something a little more traditional place, Isaiah 53 where we, um, where we pull a lot of our, a lot of, a lot of the Bible verses, you know, a lot of the pr- prophetic Christmas story comes from, I flipped through it and I thought, you know what, if I just grab like this verse and that verse, and that'll be really nice. And then I read through it, and then I read through it again, and I realized, I can't just pick one verse out of this. So because I have the fancy microphone, I'm going to read Isaiah 53. So... Before we get started, I just want to, on Isaiah 53, I want to, there's, a, there's, a, there's been a lot of talk about, about pronouns and, and all that in the news. God loves pronouns. I want you to focus on the pronouns here in Isaiah 53, because they're really important. For some reason, they really struck me this time. So, Isaiah 53, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, 
stricken by him and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, and the punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed, and we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living, for the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. And after he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death, and was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sins of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. That is, good, that is good news indeed. And if you needed a reason to sing joy to the world, that's it. That's it right there. Because if you didn't catch it, we are the transgressors. It is our iniquity, our brokenness, that he came. And because he came, that changed everything. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for, for this time, for this moment in history, for the moment in history that, that not only you came, but that 2,000 years later, we are here because you came for us, and we get to share in that, in the joy, in the forgiveness, in the grace that you provide for every single person alive. I pray that you would give us eyes to, hear, eyes to see and ears to hear. Again, to say thank you is not sufficient, but thank you, God. In your name, amen.